Welcome to the RSP Quick Game with Mark Schofield and Matt Waldman. We are here in the illustrious RSP Studios, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> whatever that is. Gonna, we're going to, this episode will be, this qu- version of Quick Game Week 14, we've decided will be what the hour will bring, which is basically, we haven't prepared anything, but we tend we tend to do pretty well even when we, we go off script. So that's what we're going to do today, Mark. Yeah, and I'm excited for it because normally you would have sent me questions and I'd have spent the Tuesday evening, Wednesday morning overthinking and over overthinking my answers because when I come on, I got to bring the A game. And so I'm excited to see where the hour goes. I'm excited to, you know, just kind of let whatever comes into my brain out. I, I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun because as someone who was a who was an off-script quarterback at Wesley, and I have a feeling that you were probably pretty darn Can good I... at that. All right, let's start here, okay? <laughs> Here's our first question, and this is going to be fantastic. I had some time last Sunday. Um, I had some time last Sunday. My wife had taken the kids on a play date, and I had some time before the games kicked off, and I was bored. And so I pulled up my college stats at Wesleyan. And we're going to play to kick things off here over under, right? <laughs> All I'm right. going to give you both my passer rating, my NCAA passer rating, an over under, and my adjusted net yards per attempt, an over under for that. And to be fair to you, Matt, I will remind you that NCAA passer ratings are different than NFL passer ratings. NCAA passer ratings, as calculated, tend to run on the high side. And I will also give you for context the idea that I was recruited to run a flex bone offense and we switched to a more pro style offense at the end of my freshman year. Too bad so you weren't vo- working with Fisher DeBerry. Seriously. Yeah. I could have been something. I could have been a contender, Matt. All right. <laughs> so the over under on the NCAA passer rating with the reminder that I just laid out is 75.0. And the over under for my adjusted net yards per attempt which, you know, guys like Mahomes and company run in the 8.9 range, I'm going to give you 3.25. Over, under on those, ready, go. I think you're over on both. Really? Yeah. You're wrong on both. (laughs) My NCAA passer rated for my career at Wesleyan University, Matt, with a reminder that it runs higher than usual, Uh was (laughs) 47.51. And prepare yourself for this because I learned something calculated my adjusted net yards per attempt, Matt. I didn't know they could be negative. <laughs> my adjusted net yards per attempt at Wesleyan was negative 0.6667. And I will give everybody the career numbers. 31 attempts. Did they just give you the seven because they didn't want to say that you were like the demon spawn of quarterback? Yeah. Okay. No, I gave myself the seven because if I was going to let this fly to the public, I was going to at least give myself the point zero 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 seven at the end of it. So anyway, 31 attempts, 11 completions <laughs> for 92 yards, zero touchdowns, and two interceptions. Oh, man. And... I was sacked five times for a loss of 26 yards, which gets factored into the adjusted net yards per attempt. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't bring my rushing stats into it, where I ran for both a touchdown and a two-point conversion during my time at Wesleyan. Um, so I should get some credit for that. But, yeah, there you go, kids. 
<laughs> so when people come up to me on Twitter or elsewhere and say, you don't know quarterback, and I do know something. I know bad quarterback. I know what that looks like because I've lived it. So when I when I dive into Carson Wentz, and people say you're a cloud. You know what we were talking about? Like, look, man, I know what bad quarterback it looks like. Like that's recognizes like. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like I, I get that part of it. Well, hey, listen, we know. Obviously, everybody who listens to this knows that Mark knows his quarterbacks. And here's the thing. Um, that's just awesome. You know, but I laugh, though, because I think about players. And I'll share this one real quick because I shared this on the Football Guys Roundtable a couple of weeks ago, this story. And I had it kind of right, but I forget, later I kind of I had the nickname wrong. So I want to share it because former football players, former football players are an interesting breed. And, and, and especially guys who played quarterback who could run. Because they're they're a little tougher breed, they're a little more insane, which fits Mark, you know, and and they're they're more physical, and so for their size, you don't, you know, you may see someone. I I imagine that like if we had a writers pickup game, and and we play tackle football, even now with some of these younger guys. I have a feeling, Mark, that this story I'm about to tell you, that this would probably fit you, okay? Because I have a, about 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I was just hanging out with some friends. We, were, we had a fantasy league, and we'd go over to his buddy's house and watch, watch the games on Sunday. And before the game started, we were going to have a pickup game. And most of the guys that I was um, in my league at that time, my local league, were all bigger than I am because I'm about your height, Mike. You know, Mark, we're about the same you know, height, weight in terms of range. I'm a little bigger because I need to lose some weight. But, um, you know, these guys were more like 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", type of dudes in their 230, 240 range to, you know, maybe at bet, you know, at their thinnest in the 200, 210. But, you know, these were bigger, taller dudes, more basketball looking kind of dudes or linemen types. And we were, we were going to play some tackle football, which I didn't mind. I mean, that was fun. But we had the... One of my, one of those guys, one of those bigger guys, said, you know, before we're going to start the game, he goes, "Is Sandals coming?" And like, and I'm like, "Who's Sandals?" And he's like, "Oh," and he kind of asked it in a way that was kind of like reticent, like, "Is Sandals going to play?" And I'm like, "Who's Sandals? What's everybody make?" Oh, Mark Maxwell. Do you know who Mark Maxwell is? I'm like, "Yeah, actually, I do know that name. He went to my high school, and now I live in. We were in Athens, Georgia. This is in Atlanta that this guy I went to high school with. So." He's he's from Atlanta, right? He's like, yeah, he went to Henderson High School, which is my was my high school. Now it's a middle school, but we didn't have many football players who really came out of there. But Mark did. Mark was a running back, um, and he got a scholarship at Georgia Tech, and he played for Bill Curry, <laughs> and he returned kicks for the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. Now, uh, Mark Maxwell's about our height and weight, probably lighter, like probably about 185, 190, you know, at at this point. Um, and he's a in a Athens. He was known as a acoustic guitar player with the with the round specs and the long curly hair about halfway down his back. Wore sandals all the time, so they called him Sandals. Um, but he got the nickname Sandals because it was a bit of an ironic name because he played football with a bunch of these guys. And as a working musician who had like become known in Athens for recording lullabies that he sold to the local hospital on DVD sets that they could, I mean, on CDs 
that they gave to newborn um, parents of newborns as they as they left the hospital as part of a gift basket. Wow. Um, you know, Mark was this real quiet kind of gentle dude. And I said, well, what happened? You know, what happened? He goes, well, sandals, we, we don't want to play with sandals anymore. Well, why not? Cause the last time, the first time we played with sandals, we kicked the ball off and we didn't know that he was a kick returner at Georgia tech. So he fielded the ball and just comes running straight down the field and we're all bearing down at him. And you literally hear that smack of like what happens when you like run into a wall or someone's gotten hit by a car or something like that. And he just ran right through us and who he didn't run through. He ran around us and by, and there were literally, he turned around and like, the entire team of us was on the on the ground and we oh, needed wow. a little bit to like get up after he tore through <laughs> us. <laughs> and so then so then the next then so then we then he kicked off. Then they kicked off. His team kicked off. After we got it together, we needed a few minutes to get it together. His team kicked off. He ran down the field, basically knocked a few more people over trying as they we tried to block him and he heard us doing that. And then just speared the guy who had the ball, knocked the ball loose, you know, recovered the ball and ran in the end zone. All in, all in a pair of sandals. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so they call him sandals ever since. And I think of him and I think of guys like who played the game and understand like what physical contact really means. And like, especially return men or oh, running quarterbacks or anybody who like, has to plow into a line of scrimmage or into into especially especially return men. Yeah, because that's like a I, crazy form. I remember at Wesleyan, we had this guy, Sean Miner, who was basically the guy whose job it was to blow up the wedge on our <laughs> kickoff team. Yeah. And I mean, you want to talk about people that are a different breed. Like when that's your job and look – I'm older, so this was the 90s. This was before we had a deeper understanding of things like CTE. Right. Like when your job is to run 55, 60 yards downfield at a full sprint and take on a wall of five men and basically like give yourself up and blow that up, you're a different human being. And I remember our our offensive line coach, who was also our special teams coach, uh, Hugh Velasquez, would always get minor like riled up. Like we would score. And you see Hugh turn away from the field and find number 46 and just start getting into his head. Like our PAT team, I'm coming on the field to hold for PATs and stuff, and I can just see out the corner of my eye, Velocis is like grabbing Miner's face mask to get him going because he's like, you are going to be kicking off, kid. We're going to be kicking off, and I need you to go kill somebody. And it's like, man. that's And now he's like a mild-mannered like eye banker in like Montana. Like he, it's like I don't understand how that works, but that's what he does. He's an eye banker in like Montana, probably because he's trying to get away from everything. But yeah, he got people it all out like, on the field. But yeah, yeah. But people like especially kickoff, kickoff return game, different kinds of human beings. It's like playing goalie in hockey. Yeah, like you have to be a different, a completely a human being that is wired in ways we can't comprehend. If you were going to stand on a frozen sheet of ice and accept slap shots to your face of a hard frozen puck that are coming at you at 200, uh, 120 miles an hour. Like you've got to be a different human being. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Man. Yeah. Fun stories, fun stories yeah. for sure. So, you know, moving on to a little bit of football for a bit, you know, 
what about some free agency? I'm looking at some free agents who are like coming through or are going to be guys who are likely to be free agents this year. And I, and I think about like teams that where they might be good fits or might not be good fits. And like one of the players that comes to mind to me is Kenny Galladay, who might, you know, they thought was going to get resigned by the lions. Now there's talk. He might go to the giants. And so, you know, or at least the Giants media are kind of like liking the idea of him going to the Giants. Let's put it that way. Um, do you, who would you like to see as a wide receiver for the Giants franchise if they were to acquire one from free agency? I mean, look, Galladay is obviously somebody that could fit, I think, in a variety of offensive systems. You know, I think... He's the kind of receiver that you can see in a downfield offense. You can see him doing things over the middle, underneath, and things like that. You know, but I think what the Giants need is they need that between the hash marks kind of presence. You know, that's something that their offense just generally is missing right now. You know, they thought they might have it with Sammy Watkins. They thought they might get it in addition with Sterling Shepard. Shepard's sort of been in and out of the lineup. You know, I think – if you look at the Giants sort of on paper, you kind of like what they have from an 11 personnel standpoint. I think Darius Slayton is kind of that guy at the X. I think you need like a Z or a slot, like somebody that can work underneath and sort of create some things. And when I look at sort of the upcoming free agents, you know, at the wide receiver position, while Galladay is certainly an intriguing guy, there are a couple of names that stand out. Curtis Samuel, I think, is one. Now, I don't know if Carolina is going to let him see the market, but I think there's somebody that could give you that presence sort of underneath, over the middle, between the hash marks, some of those option-type routes that you need somebody to run. You know, I look at a guy like Alex Alex, Alex Erickson from Cincinnati, hmm. who I don't think gets a lot of attention, but I think he's somebody that could give you some of that, obviously, on the cheap. He's a bit older, 28, um, but somebody in that role I think that could also work. And a final name I'm going to throw out there, and he's certainly older. Um, I'll give you two, actually. Another line, and that's Danny Amendola. Yeah. You know, it's whatever we want to say about Danny Amendola. Like, he's one of those guys that just finds ways to get open, particularly against zone coverage, in between the hash marks, over the middle, doesn't mind running those routes. Obviously, some experience in a New England system, so you've got that experience and that, that quote of, you know, route game to him. And then Seth Roberts. Mm. And another guy that sort of flies under the radar, a guy that I think could serve in that role, because that's what I think they need. Like, Look, you look at some of the big names, a T.Y. Hilton, you know, and Allen Robinson, like, yeah, sure, obviously, those guys would certainly work. But I think for what they need from a conceptual standpoint, those are some guys I think on that sort of secondary free agent market would make some sense. What about you? I like those thoughts. Um, and I agree. I don't think Kenny Galladay's a good fit at all. I think he's more of a – I mean, I think he's more of a, a free-access Vincent Jackson type of receiver um, yeah. who just – they already kind of have that in Slayton. So they they need what you described. So candidate for me, if you're going to say, let's draft somebody, but then we want to have someone who's a, a consummate professional who can be in that receiver room, who might who's played multiple roles and can play multiple roles and teach while also still providing a high level of play, that would be Marvin Jones. I think Marvin yeah. Jones playing a Z, you know, in Detroit, being able to be able to do that, be a, he can give you what you're looking for from that perspective. I think that if you're going to go cheap from the Bengals, another guy who might be interesting is Mike Thomas, the the um, Southern Miss guy who right. 
who can who's shown a little bit on the inside, had a really strong camp. Um, and like Alec Erickson, is probably um, underrated in some respects. Though Thomas has his share of drops at times, so that's that's been kind of his bugaboo. But he's also a very good special teamer. Um, so that could be, you know, you can kind of get two and one from him. If one doesn't work out quite well, um, as maybe seeing him as a starter, he could still be give you special teams help. So I like him. Um, another guy that's I'm really interested in seeing, but I think he'd be a better fit for the Detroit Lions, to be honest with you, is Josh Reynolds. Like um, uh-huh. Josh Reynolds, like Sean McVay took a took a an X, if you ask me, like took an X receiver who's like unbelievably good at winning contested plays and made him run routes inside the hashes, which I think may long-term be beneficial to his career, but he could wind up having that kind of Robert Woods-like impact somewhere else. Imagine Matthew Stafford with that guy. That could be, he could be a replacement to Galladay, and then his experience is working inside. Maybe he's a also could be a, re- a replacement for Jones either way. So it's kind of like, that's interesting. But for, I like the Samuel idea. My only concern is that teams may be too prone to try and gadgetize him yeah. to, the, to, to the degree. Because I think he can be, like everybody says, like I think he can be a starting receiver in the league who plays outside. But he's going to have to kind of prove that a little bit more. And I think that because he's so good at so many things, but maybe he might not be great at any one thing that is important for him to be an every down guy. So yeah, those are some of the ones that kind of fit the bill for me. So, I mean, we started with wide receiver. Obviously, you know, we'll get into quarterbacks a little bit here. And I do want to sort of segue into quarterbacks a bit. Obviously the big name is Dak Prescott. But there are some other quarterbacks that are going to be available on that market. And I'm going to give you three quarterbacks to choose from. Which is your favorite of the three? Where is his best landed spot? Which is your least favorite of the three? And what would be, a, if you could find one, a good landing spot for him? And those three, Jacoby Brissett, Mitchell Trubisky, Andy Dalton. Best three. Okay, those. Which one? which one do I think is the best of the three? Yeah. Which one and where do I think that would be the best landing spot for one of those three? Yeah. Yeah. And then what's the third question? Uh, so which is your favorite of the three and a good landing spot for them? Okay. And then which is your least favorite of the three, but where could they possibly work? Okay. So it's kind of like two guys and a, you know, good and a, be- a good and a good for both. Okay. Um, I would say my favorite of the three, um, would probably be Brissett, um, mainly because I think Brissett still has the growth potential to his game, and he's seen enough different things that I think while he's not he's not as talented as Trubisky and maybe not as wizen as Andy Dalton, um, I think that there's still a little bit more room for him to to win. I don't think he's unbelievably exciting, but I'd like to see him. I think if there were a team that I'd like to see him with, I could see maybe as a placeholder starter for the New York Jets. I could see him maybe as a or a placeholder for the Jaguars in that in that respect. Um, you know, but I think that more likely teams will probably want either of those teams would probably want a guy like Dalton in there to do that type of work. Um, my least favorite is Trubisky. 
Um, and mainly because I don't think the things that plagued him at UNC are ever going to change. I just don't think, I think it's, it's too far ingrained in his game, but I think a team where that could benefit from him would be any team that like the Cleveland Browns as a backup, like, you know, he'd be a terrific backup for Cleveland because I think, um, you know, one, he's a local kid, you know, which is the least important thing, but he is a local kid. He's also someone who has that running ability that Baker Mayfield lacks. I know everyone thought Baker Mayfield could run, but he, he can run in college, you know, but that he couldn't, he's not a threat, you know, a, a He's, he, I think Matt Ryan and him are similar threats, to be honest with you. Yeah. And and Matt Ryan isn't known as a runner, but Baker Mayfield somehow is. Um, so I would say Trubisky could be a nice little holdover because they could manage the game with him. They could kind of Jake Plummer him in the same way that they've Jake Plummered Baker Mayfield. Um, so I kind of like that idea. Or maybe sit him behind Tennessee, um, you know, with Ryan Tannehill and have him maybe learn behind a veteran who's also been kind of through the starter bench backup ringer um, on that respect. So I could see how that would be it. How about you? Well, I'm with you on both of the names. Um, and then, you know, Brissett, the good Trubisky, the bad, I think for Brissett, obviously an, uh, an idea many might have is a return to new England. Um, oh yeah. You know, cause he would have that experience with the playbook. Um whatever variation thereof the New England Patriots playbook currently looks like. Um, but I think an interesting name team to keep in mind would be Dallas, depending on the big domino. Yeah. Um, so that might be something to watch because if Dallas suddenly goes the rookie quarterback bridge QB route, maybe they hold on to Dalton, maybe not. Maybe Brissett would be the guy. Um, so those are some potential spots for Brissett. As far as Trubisky, you know, I think uh, Tannehill, uh, behind Tannehill in Tennessee would be good for him. Because um, I think that offense, in a way, limits what the quarterback needs to do. In a similar way, maybe Minnesota, you know, the way they limit what the quarterback is asked to do, a lot of play action and things like that. But I would also say this. If the New England Patriots decide that Cam Newton is going to remain in our plans for 2021 and beyond, mm, yeah, Mitchell Trubisky as a backup there would make some sense. Because now you're talking about somebody that, look, you can just run QB power with. You can just run 19 power with. Not – his explosiveness as a runner, but when Matt Nagy needed to get him into the flow of games, he would just call design runs for him. And you sometimes saw that work. And so, and he's I so that, good at that. Yeah. I, he's very good at that. And you know, if you're going to find, and that's what New England does, they ask the question, what can he do? That's what Trubisky could do. And if this offense in New England is going to look the same way as it did this year in 2021, that might make some sense for them. I like that idea very much. Let's stay in New England. Cause one of the guys that I'd like to know what you think about is Damian Harris. Do you think he gets a chance to be the guy like he's kind of been heading down that road lately? Or do you think they're going to either draft somebody else, re-sign Rex Burkhead, keep, you know, keep James White in that role? What do you think of Damian Harris thus far? The Patriots running back room is always the toughest question to answer. And I'm sure you get asked it a ton. I mean, yeah. I get asked it anytime I go on to a show, you know, I got to ask you before you go, Mark, I, I've got Rex Burkhead and, you know, James White in my lineup. Like, which one should I start? Pray. Just like, I don't know. I just don't know. I wish I, if I knew the answers to those questions, I'd be a much more, shall we say, financially sound man than I am right now, because I would be able to capitalize on that knowledge. I don't. 
They they it varies week to week. But I will say their offense has looked at its best, at least in the run game with Damian Harris in the game. I think they're a team that runs a lot of gap power stuff. They use a lot of 21 personnel. They use a lot of Jakob Johnson as their lead back. But what's been great about Harris and perhaps the difference between him and some of the other guys in that room, the burst when he bounces, it's there for him and it's not there for some of the other guys. Sony Michelle tries to hit something inside. It's not there. He bounces to the outside. It's not, He's not going to get the corner. You know, Burkhead, not going to get there. White, they don't use him like that much in that role. But when Harris does, when Harris bounces, when Harris kicks something to the outside, he can get to the edge. They've used him on their, you know, their power toss design, which has been a big part of their run game this year. And so the combination of burst as well as his vision as a ball carrier has been beneficial for them. So I think if there's anybody I'm going to point to in that running back room and say, this is their bell cow back for the next three years, it's Harris. But again, that being said, I wouldn't bet on it, you know, because Belichick might be thinking, yeah, this guy's great. And then he's going to draft somebody with their pick in the first round. Like, I just, I cannot get their running back room right. This is what I think. But if you're thinking about putting money on something like that, don't do it. Yeah, good luck on that. And it's yeah. funny because Harris, to me, has been in- so interesting because at Alabama, he ran a lot of zone. Yeah. And he was a shifty, quick-footed, jump-cutting kind of wonder who was versatile in the passing game and kind of struck me as a zone runner. Then I see him against the Chiefs, and I'm like, who is this guy? Did like I, I had to go back and look at my scouting report and then go back and look at, like, tape just because like I wanted to make sure that like I didn't fall asleep and you know it's like the baby switching incidents and you know I thought maybe I had switched the baby and like ended up giving somebody the wrong baby because this was a this this was a straight line you know gap running guy who just like didn't really show much movement with the Patriots early on and it was his first start and first extensive on-field experience against the Chiefs. But since then, I've seen a little more from him in that regard. But you're right about, like, those other backs. I mean, like, James White's specialty is short area change of direction. Like, yep. very quick. He's very quick. But he um, but he doesn't have great acceleration or great top speed. And he certainly doesn't have great power. But he's a great one-on-one player or open field player in that respect. And he's smart enough to do what you need him to do when the boxes are light, you know? Um, yep. And and then when you look at a guy like Burkhead, Burkhead has no top end speed whatsoever, but he's got great initial burst. But if you ask him to run to the far side of edge, that's basically running, that's basically long distance speed at, at some point. So yeah, he's a guy that's also, and he's probably slowed down a little bit with the injuries he's had and the hits he's taken. So he's probably not quite as quick as he once was when he was at Nebraska, but mm-hmm. But still, you know, same kind of thing. So it is fascinating. I do. I would. I'm with you. I mean, you know better than I do. You cover that team so well. Um, but yeah, if there was a guy I was gonna bank it on, it would be Damian Harrison and the way that he's played thus far. And that that seems to me the strength of this Pats game has been the run and has been when it can run power. You know, be a power running team. So that's my thought. Let's go. Continuing with the quarterbacks now, you can answer either one of these questions. You can tell me either an incoming or a potentially incoming draft quarterback 
that you've been impressed with or a quarterback in this year's or the previous year's draft classes. So the 2018 and the, or the 2019 and the 2020 drafts in the NFL that you've been impressed with. All right. Oh, just like, okay. So who I found impressive for many of those classes. Um, and I can pick either one. Um, you know, it's funny. It's been a while since I've, I've been studying quarterbacks for the 2020 draft after I did a good bit this summer and I kind of took a hiatus from them. So I have to kind of go back and look for that. But from 2019, 2020, someone that's impressed me. Um, wow. Um, let me think about that for a quick second here. And what's funny is because we watch so many players, it's like I'm literally having to go back and look at the list of players who are here to make sure that I'm not missing anybody. I would say probably someone that's the guy who's impressed me, you know, the most has been Justin Herbert um, in terms of how he's played, his aggression, what he's done downfield, um, you know, how he's moved, maneuvered the pocket. But the guy who I still think has the most upside is Tua. I still think, you know, I love what Joe Burrow did. And I think Joe Burrow is the, I think Joe Burrow has been the best rookie quarterback of this class that we've seen enter in. But I think the guy who has more upside as a thrower and similar upside as a, as a technician from the standpoint of what an offense will do with them. Like if you put them one-to-one -one and you'd say that you'd say put two in Joe Burrow's offense, I'd probably pick Burrow. <laughs> but, but if you put Burrow into his offense, I would say, I'm not so sure. I would probably give the edge to the two. And I just love that this team has been, we've talked about this before. They've had a program for him, as you mentioned, and they're doing it a little bit old school way. So yeah, I'm, I'm bullish on Tua at this point. How about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm bullish on three on all three. I, I do want to, you know, touch on Herbert. Um, Cause that's the one I've been the most impressed by. Um, and I know recency bias with the game against new England, where he struggled Well, bill Belichick is going to do that to a rookie quarterback. He's going to make you look like a rookie. And he did that. And he did that well against Justin Herbert, but I think what Herbert has shown us this year is a great example of how the evaluation game is changing, you know, because I, th I think for many, and I put myself in this category, we get so excited when we see reading coverages, diagnosing things, pre-snap awareness, post-snap awareness. And coaches in today's NFL are trying to do what we're seeing a lot in the college game with these younger guys, which is simplify things, but still give them ways to attack a defense where you don't, it's great if you could decipher stubby versus stump or seven versus three in the secondary, but you don't need to. Can you find the open guy and put the ball where it needs to be? Like that's what you need to do. And you're seeing things like half real half field reads concepts, man versus zone, things like that, where it's just find me the weakest link and throw against the leverage of that defender, put the ball where it needs to be. So things like accuracy and ball placement are a much more bigger part of the equation than what you do from a mental perspective, in a sense. And I think Herbert has shown that. And so I think, 
you know, we've seen this with other quarterbacks, how the evaluation game has changed in the Kyler Murray's of the world. And Herbert's just another example of that. And when you as a rookie have to dictate what defenses can and cannot do against you, that's a pretty cool thing to see. And Herbert's done that as well. I like that answer. Now, but here, let's do a follow-up question to that about how the, the landscape of draft evaluation is changing. Do what, what would be your counter argument to someone who says, well, that's all good and well that um, that we're that NFL coaches are giving them simpler concepts to work with, but what about the idea that you know two three years from now you know 12, 14, 24, 36 games from now defenses get a book on these guys and go we're not going to let you do this simple crap you know is am I saying is that are they going to be able to not do that or is it the game changed enough because of the way that they've spread things out that that it's always going to be allowed to do that simpler stuff. You know, I think in some sense, the game has changed to the point, you know, and, you know, Betts had an interesting tweet at all 22 on Twitter about how NFL offenses today run in so much wide zone and then play action crossers like off of that is kind of when the NBA figured out like things like how to use space on the floor and pick and rolls and things like that, you know, because we've relied on, sort of QB-centric view of an offense where you have to sit in the pocket, third and seven, hand in there, and throw the deep out route to move the sticks on third down. Like, you don't need to do that. You were artificially making the game harder on yourself. You know, now move guys around, attack space, get athletes in space. You know, you can still be successful as an offense, and that will sort of always be there. I mean, look at what Kirk Cousins is doing in Minnesota. Look at how much of their offense, obviously, this Kubiak system. You know, you can trace that to even Joe Flacco where outside zone, wide zone, boot off of that, throw crossers, tight end in the flat, you could win a Super Bowl doing that. And yeah. granted, it's broke Baltimore's way when they did that, but you can do that. And, you know, we don't it, – it's great when a quarterback can then take that developmental leap to whereas, you know, 24 or 36 games into their career, you take that stuff away as a defense, great. Well, now they're going to beat you another way. That's that's the rare type. Those are the elite types. The guys like the Brady's, the Rodgers, the Mahomes that will always find a home in the NFL. But you don't need those guys. You know, you can need you can get that next tier of guy, the Kirk Cousins type, that you can find a functional offense with, cater to space, use play action, and still be successful. I mean, that'd be my counter argument. I don't know if I'm right. I mean, maybe I'm right with Cousins, maybe I'm wrong with Wentz. Um, but that's where I'd go with it. What about you? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because I'm sitting here. You know, on Sunday, I'm sitting here watching Corey Davis, and, you know, I see some people yeah. in the fantasy community who are like, the time to get on the Corey Davis bandwagon has passed. You should have been on it for the past few years, and now he's finally going to punch his ticket as being a, a a top starter. And I'm, like, watching the games, and I'm going, he gives you a little extra, you know, than just what, than, than what I see the steady diet being. But that steady diet is crossing routes on the backside where the linebackers sucked up. Because that's where, you know, he's he's running from the backside across to the front side and wide open because the linebackers have to respect Derrick Henry, you know. Um, or the Browns, same thing. They got to respect Nick Chubb. So there's there's Landry, you know, there's Peoples-Jones, there's Beckham, you know, wide open, same type of play. Um, they did the same thing, you know, in Denver. You see the same thing with Tim Patrick, you know, yep. who – I like Tim Patrick. I think he could be an interesting free agent somewhere, but he's not a 
you know, he's not the guy that anyone, most people would consider your classic starting NFL receiver, um, even though I think he can be. It's just, you know, you look at it from that perspective and all three teams are doing the same thing. Most of the teams have this type of concept in their playbook and use it frequently. So, yeah, I, I like what you're saying there with that. And it does mean that you kind of have to look at the game in a way and say, all right, where does he fit? And and what is it? And, you know, the things that he can do, what, what we want is we want improvisational skill. We want someone who can read leverage. We want someone who can... Um, you know, has good drop footwork so that they can be, or good footwork so that they're accurate mechanically um, and that they play intelligent, game-savvy management skills in terms of on the field. And whether or not that they are wizards on the whiteboard doesn't matter. I like that. So that makes sense to me. Where are we with Jalen Hurts and Carson Wentz? Where are we with the Philadelphia saga, as it were? Well, I think Carson, you know, you as you know, I'll, I, you know what I'm going to say is that Carson Wentz has been exposed as a guy who the team minimized his weaknesses, maximized his strength, but now the team doesn't have the talent to do that right now that's healthy enough. So now it's been exacerbated. His weaknesses have been exacerbated. And so the big question for me is, is the team, this, this is kind of a narr- part narrative street, part technical thing. Like part of it is you could look at it and say, has he been beaten up and is he pressed too much at this point that he's been ruined, you know, as a starter? I don't think so. I don't think that that's the case. But there's a possibility that maybe he starts seeing ghosts and playing this way erratically wherever he is, whether it's still in Philly because he's financially where he needs to be that, you know, they don't want to, maybe they don't, they, it's just would cost too much to let him go or not have him start. Um, or if he wound up in another team and the same issues happen because other teams will realize we need more talent around us for him to be at his best. So there's that end, the kind of the the whole end of like what happens to quarterbacks when they regress and when they go through some tough things. But then there's the other part of it is I have to think that the Eagles after that second week, second season, like midway through the second season or really the first month and said, Carson Wentz, he's not ever going to be accurate on the regular drop back game. We've got to spread the field. We've got to throw to open spots. We've got to, you know, we've got to change this around. And he's really good in these aspects, but in other ways he's not. So let's hide some of this stuff. I think they've known, obviously they've known that all along. Now, they're not going to sit there and say to the public, you know, or to anybody else, he's a limited quarterback, but has really great strengths in the areas where he's strong. Um, so, you know, but now because the public is aware of this because they've been watching him without this talent and he hasn't been able to carry them on his back, even in the way that you would look at a mediocre season out of an Aaron Rodgers or a mediocre season out of a Brett Favre or anything like that, where you get people rumbling and say, well, maybe Aaron Rodgers is not that good, which would get met from a chorus of shut up. You're an idiot because you are, <laughs> but, <laughs> right. but you know, he, you know, those are one of those football idiot questions we've all asked, but the, 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 that's what the answer is. Maybe the Eagles look at this and go, you know what? We knew this was coming. That's why we drafted Jalen Hurts in the second round. That's what I thought is when they drafted him in the second round, I'm like, whoa. That means they may be thinking, we're not all that sold on Carson Wentz right now. 
Um, and he needs to have a good year. And now that he didn't have a good year, even though a lot of that wasn't quote unquote his fault, and it was set up by the Eagles enabling saying, we're going to make the most out of Carson Wentz and he's been good, but you know, we're not asking him to improve on his weaknesses as much as we are to hide those weaknesses. As a result of that, now that they've been quote found out by the Eagles fans, you know, where they're coming to grips from out of the denial that they've probably been in, you know, of this, they're probably thinking maybe we do need to go to somebody else because if we stick him back in there, we're going to need great talent for him to be good. And we might not be able to get as much surrounding talent for that to happen. And that may cost us our jobs. Whereas if we go with the new guy, well, that may cost us our jobs too, but we won't, but it'll be because we're losing and we, we just, we picked wrong on Hertz, but we picked him in the second round. So maybe we, we need to let him see if he can develop past Wentz in certain right. respects. So I'm not sold on Hertz being that guy, but I, I see the potential on him. Um, I see the potential in him being a similar guy to Wentz who might not have the same pocket issues as Wentz does and maybe have more flexibility to develop into a, a little bit more of a technically sound and accurate quarterback in some respects, but doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting that much better. So to me, this is like, to me, the Eagles front office is going, how do we save our jobs? That's basically where I'm at. How about you? And I think, I, I think, we often forget that that is the prime motivator for many decision makers we spend so much time talking about and wondering about is how can they save their jobs you know i think the wentz story in this little saga is a nice little learning lesson as well um both in terms of roster construction roster management and in in terms of quarterback evaluation and from a you know somewhat selfish perspective when Wentz on that Monday night game against Seattle, when he had the two vertical seam routes before halftime and Greasy and Riddick like lost their minds. They're like, this is single high. This is a pair of seam routes and he doesn't even throw them. And he triple hitches before underthrowing a comeback route. My mind flashed to two places. It flashed to the previous week in a video I had done on Wentz missing that same concept against the Browns. But then it flashed to a throw he made against North Dakota his senior year at NDSU. And this was a play, it was a clip that floated around on draft Twitter where it's four verticals in the red zone against single high. And he just locks his eyes on that outside boundary receiver who converts his to a comeback because the coverage, the, the route is capped. There's a cushion, so he runs a comeback instead and once hitches three times and then throws it. And most people on draft Twitter lost their minds saying this is ridiculous. He's never going to make it. And as somebody that had planted a flag on Wentz Hill, I took to Twitter to defend him. Basically saying, look, he knows it's going to be open. He knows because of the coverage it's going to be open. And I remember that piece that I wrote made it to the Browns Reddit. I mean, you know, Reddit, we all know it's a wretched hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> and somebody remarked in the comment thread that, look, this is single high coverage. You have to throw the seam routes. And then back of my mind, I knew that guy was dead on right. I knew that guy on Reddit was dead on right. That man, that woman, whoever wrote it. But I had backed myself into the corner of defended Wentz because that's where I was. That was my brand at the time that I lost sight of what he was actually supposed to do and found a way to explain 
what we were seeing. And now what we're seeing is Carson Wentz regression is the way most people have described it. I'd say it's more of a collapse. This is a quarterback that has collapsed from the point where he was an MVP type guy to making mistakes that he was making as a senior in college at the FCS level. And the more I study quarterbacks, the more I spend my, all my spare time thinking about quarterbacks, which is probably unhealthy at this point, Matt, they are who they are. You talked about it earlier with Trubisky. The problems that plagued him at UNC are there right now. We have this mythologized idea of drafting a toolsy guy that can make some stuff happen and thinking he's going to get NFL coaching, he's going to get coached up, and he's going to develop. Development doesn't happen. I I always would say development isn't linear. I might have to amend that. Development is almost impossible. Like because of the CBA, because of whatever reason, these guys are for the most part close to finished products. And that might be the case with Wentz. So it's a case of evaluation and rethinking that. It's a case of rethinking development. It's a case of rethinking a lot of things. But this Wentz situation is something that's going to force people to like rethink some things, and I'm putting myself at the top of that list. I want to add an addendum to this because I'm with you on the idea that more and more they are who they are. I mean, there are things that they can improve, but they're not nearly as much as you would expect. It's like right. my daughter played the violin for a little bit, and apparently she, um, you know, she played in middle school and she was pretty good at it. Um, and they had a visiting symphony player come and he looked at her technique and was basically like, yeah, it's ruined. Like, you know, it was very blunt about it in a way, but like they kind of knew in, a, in advance that this was what, what they were trying to go towards more like a, an all district type of situation and whether, you know, and he meant more from a future standpoint of if she wanted to be like a professional musician, like she's already spent too many hours ingraining her technique in a specific way that it would be very difficult for her to overcome and relearn. Um, and the point I make about that is that when I think about that and I, you know, to use a music an analogy or story about that is that, you know, you think about players who play in professional situations at high end levels like symphonies or you know or studio musicians um who who play anything from a range of symphonic music to country music to rock and roll to they can play anything you know that you put in there um they have they're not gonna get coached up by the conductor you know like they're gonna get coached up on how to interpret a piece on how to interpret the music but on how to play they they have to know that before they ever get hired in those situations they have to understand all the technical things and those technical things come with so much work and practice and dedication time that very rarely can you develop some of those things unless you already have a certain eye for it or feel for it they're very it's very rare. like to me antonio gibson as a running back is a is probably the best example since Tyreek Hill of a raw player who's getting by on raw talent as opposed to unrefined talent. Those are the two guys in the past five to seven years that I can think of who you can look at and say they might as well be playing with blindfolds on as rookies 
but they're still getting it done. Like there's right. so much that they're not doing that you, someone who's schooled and learned and what a running back's supposed to do or why you're supposed to do, you're going, this guy's just so much better athletically and he has a feel for what he's doing, but he but he's still costing himself a lot more than what he could attain as a result of that. And I think that when you look at the quarterback position, there's just too many details to that position for that to be the case, which is why I chafe when I ask this question, when people say, well, if Patrick Mahomes went to the New York Jets and Sam Darnold went to the Kansas City Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes would be like Sam Darnold. And I and I kind of chafe at that just to the extent that would Patrick Mahomes be an MVP and Super Bowl MVP? No. But would he be a player that we would look at and say he's, I'm trying to think of a, a good example of a player, but would he be like a young Brett Favre before they had talent around them? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. You know, he would he be the guy who might have have thrown 28 touchdowns and 18 interceptions in this, this type of, um, you know, NFL? Probably. You know, could he have gone 30 for 30 like Jameis? Probably not even as bad as that. He probably would have done, he probably, he might have been 35-25, you know, but he would have been in that type of a realm. Whereas I think with Darnold, even with Darnold might have become a better quarterback because he wasn't put in situations that hurt him, you, you know. But I, but I, but I look at that, and I'm, I'm with you. So I guess my question is to you: Is do you agree with me on the whole? Like, if we switched, if we played trading places with Patrick Mahomes and Sam Darnold, that Sam Darnold would probably be better, but Sam, but Patrick Mahomes wouldn't be what Sam Darnold is right now. Right, I, I'm exactly with you on that. Um, you know, and look, our fondness for Patrick Mahomes is well known around these parts at this point. Um, you know, and I think if Mahomes ended up in Chicago or ended up in New York with the Jets or anywhere else, he still would have been a very good, you know, above average to well above average quarterback in the National Football League. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the question we had on Mahomes back then before his draft was, will he find the right coach to let him be who he is? Or are we going to, is he going to end up with a coach who's going to try to coach Patrick Mahomes out of Patrick Mahomes. Yes. And thankfully he ended up with a coach who was going to let him be who he is. And so, you know, and on the flip side of that, you know, I think Donald would have been a better quarterback. Um, he might've been a more aggressive Alex Smith, I'd say in that sort of Andy Reid type of system where he'd be willing to take some more throws downfield and a bit, a bit more athletic, but you still weren't going to get 50 touchdowns out of him or anything like that. No. Um, I do, you know, piggyback it a bit off of what you were just saying. I think we need to, and this goes for all positions, but certainly quarterback, we need to be more aware of muscle memory. Yes. When we're playing sports. Um, and I often use it in the realm of mechanics for a quarterback, but there's more to it than that. I just, earlier today, I recorded an episode with uh, Seth Galina. Uh, for my podcast who writes for PFF knows the quarterback position. And he and I were talking like after the show about sort of the idea of muscle memory and the way he brought it up. And it's a great example. You know, we 
say on Sunday, a team runs a sale concept with an outside post route, a deep out route, and then a route to the flat. And the safety, for whatever reason, jumps that sale route, the deep out route, and the post is wide open. And we sit in and we crush the quarterback. Why did you throw the post? It's wide open. Why didn't you read it right? But he spent all week expecting the defense to stay on the post route and throw in the out route. So he's thrown that 50 times over the course of a week. And now, in the blink of an eye, he's supposed to do something different. Now, the great ones will find a way to do that. Um, but I thought that was a good way to sort of start the conversation. And then I brought up the troubles we're seeing right now in Tampa Bay with Bruce Arians and Tom Brady in a new offense. A lot of people, I've written about it, others have talked about it, um, trouble with hot reads when guys aren't on the same page. If you watch that Kansas City uh, Tampa Bay game, Tony Rowe was talking about hot reads, hot reads. Nobody knows who's hot, who's not. For 20 years, Tom Brady has been in a system, in an offense where hot reads are protection-based, right? If we can't block number six, the tight end who fills that spot on his release is going to be the hot read. That's where you go with the football. But with Bruce Arians, it's it's not if a, we can't block number six who's coming, the sixth, not the sixth defender, you're going to throw a crossing route. Or you're going to take a deep shot. Like it's not it's prescriptive. Yeah. It's prescriptive. It's space-based. It's a different way of doing it. And when you watch Tom Brady, they had a throw early in that game, a zero blitz play. You might remember it. Antonio Brown was in the backfield. They run mesh wheel with Brown on a wheel route. And Brady gets a zero blitz and he ends up throwing it away. He's targeted Antonio Brown on a wheel, but he five yards deep into the sideline. Where did his eyes go first? They went to Tom. No, they went to Rob Gronkowski, the tight end, who was blitzing. And that's usually his hot read, but Rob Gronkowski, probably not hot in that situation. He's not looking for the football. So now Brady's dead to right, so he has to throw it away. That's muscle memory too, because for 20 years, Tom Brady sees that blitz and his eyes go to the tight end. But now they don't. And that stuff is so hard to unlearn. And we're talking about arguably the greatest quarterback of all time struggling to do it. So when we talk about a rookie quarterback coming into the league, now learning how to run a concept, it's going to be tough. So muscle memory it's, it goes beyond the realm of mechanics. It goes down to execution too. And at the quarterback position, when you've been doing something one way for a week, a month, a season, a career, to then learn a different way, it's going to be tough. Yeah, that's great stuff. And it's funny because it begs the question, why on earth would you make Tom Brady play your system? I don't know. You know, I mean, and, and isn't this what you and I and others have talked about for a long time now? Stop fitting square pegs into round holes. Like yeah. if this is what the guy does, you run that offense. Yeah. And I understand somewhat from a conceptual standpoint, like you don't want to cater an entire offense just to one guy. What if he gets hurt? When it's your quarterback, that's what you do. Like, yeah. You know, if you're going to come around and walk around with the idea, well, you know, if 18 goes down, we're bleeped and we don't practice bleep, so we're not going to practice our backup. Well, if that's your mentality, then your playbook better reflect what 18 does. Yeah. And that's what teams need to do. Yeah, because to me – realistically, I don't know how any team wouldn't say if 18 goes down, we're bleeped because right. that's the realism. I mean, what fan is going to go only the, only the, the, the most ignorant portion of fans would say, well, if Tom Brady goes down, then we should still be able to compete 10 for a Super Bowl with our backup. No, unless your backup was still Jameis Winston and, right. and he knew that system, which he didn't. So, Either way, I mean, I would look at it as for most teams, when your starting quarterback goes down, you're bleeped. That's why 
Dick Vermeil was in tears when Trent Green went down. He just yep. got lucky. He <laughs> they got lucky with Kurt Warner. That I and mean, the Patriots got lucky with Tom Brady. Yes, exactly. Like, you can't tell me they passed on him how many times? Yeah, like yeah, they saw something in him to keep him around. They got lucky. And I say that as a Patriots fan. Sure they did. Patriots paraphernalia all around my office behind me. Sure they did. Of course they did. And I think everybody knows that. You know, it's like, you know, now, was there a scout or two? Or were there scouts who knew that they liked him? But the the organization at the top? The organization at the top has got to take that responsibility for that. So whether a scout may have said, we think he's a, you know, an early second day talent, you know, that's different than, you know, maybe, you know, still it doesn't matter. So, yeah, right. I mean. Well, it's, 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 it's that old saw, right? You know, if you're a scout and there's a guy you kind of like, you put what? Uh, put Fourth a mid-round round grade. grade on Yeah, him? exactly. Yeah. It's like if he goes great, it's like, what do you want, man? I said day two pick. Right. And if he doesn't, it's like, well, I just thought he was a day two pick. Whatever. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you know, you know they it don't goes both. back to that idea. We have to remember these are people trying to save their jobs. Yep. Absolutely. So listen, um, this was great. Um, yeah. You know, as always, we have a good. What where the hour took us? Yeah, we did, and so we got a we got a good bit of quarterback, some free agency conversation, some scouting conversation involved with this. And as the season winds down, we'll obviously do a little bit more with the college game and start talking about the NFL draft, something that we'll be excited about this season. I'm just curious. You know, this is the end of the end of the show. Are you even thinking about going to the Senior Bowl this year, or are you like, are you kidding me? I'm at, I'm in the you I'm I'm at you kid. Are you kidding me? There's no way in hell it's, I'm going to the Senior Bowl this year. It's funny. Um, on our show last week, Doug Ferrar Ferrar and I kind of brought it up, and I started talking about you know ways to make it work. And Doug just looked at me as like, you're not going. You're not going because your wife is upstairs right now. And I can tell you, if your wife is like mine, you are not going to that. And yeah, so I'm kind of in the, no because what do we do at the senior bowl? We hang out with people. We go out to eat. We might go out at night. Like we get a chance to catch up with people. We get to catch up and spend time together. You know, we get to get, we all see each other all the time on Twitter, on shows and things like that. But it's different when you can grab a meal with somebody you know, grab, grab a drink with somebody, stand together for six hours over the course of a day and, you know, make fun of what's happening on the field, make fun of each other, like do what we do. That's what you go to the senior bowl for. Like as nice as it is to see some of the drills and to get to see guys up close and maybe to talk with some of these guys, you go for that and you can't really do that. Like I'm not walking as much as I love Veets. I'm not walking into Veets unless everybody I know and love has been vaccinated. And this thing is like gone. I, I can't do That's, that. I'm the same way. I'm because same I can't, way. you know, I can't give you a big hug. I can't give like Michael Kiss a big bear hug. I can't, you know, have a drink or two with somebody else. Like with Dan Hammond or somebody, you can't do that. And without the ability to do that, like I, I'm not going to get on a plane and put people I know and love at risk for something that, again, might I might catch coronavirus and be fine. But people I know and love and I'm close to might not be. And I can't, I can't risk that. Yeah. I would love to see Jim Nagy. Like I got the email and I saw that they're going to try to make practice from available for credential people. I would like to be able to like get everybody access to that. Like that would be okay. We could still do some work. But as much as I love the senior bowl, look, it's one of my favorite things each year. I, I'm with you. I can't do it. Yeah, I'm the same way. And it's like, 
and I and I me and Cecil like staying and Gene like staying in cheap hotels. And there's no way I'm staying in the cheap hotel during yeah. during this going on on top of all of that. So yeah, it's a it's you know I wish them luck with them putting this on. Um, you know, and I hope that I wish them the best with what they figure out what to do. And I hope the people who decide to go are careful and as much that they can be. But but yeah, there's no way I'm going. But that's all right. There'll be um, there'll be lots of information to be able to glean from it and in other ways. And they'll and probably broadcast it. They'll probably broadcast the practices again, yeah. which you can tape and then analyze, which is actually even better than going to the practice, to be quite honest with you. The networking part of the Senior Bowl is, probably, like you said, the biggest part of this. And there's a lot you can learn from that. And I, I figured that would be a good way to kind of end this. I just I'll ask about that from a net from a networking perspective. For me, I know that it gave me the opportunity to learn the difference between what's valuable about practice and what's not. And I've learned over the years that there's far less valuable about practice than what I thought when I first went. Um, I learned the difference between beat reporters and football analysts and some beat rep and that doesn't mean beat reporters aren't good. It just means that they're very good at writing stories and reporting. They're not necessarily football analysts. Um, some are some, some use some of those skills, some have none of those skills, you know. And then there's the whole idea of, you know, what you learn having conversations with people who have been scouts, are scouts, um, you know, and how teams see things. And so for me, that would be the lesson that I would say, those are lessons I've taken from it. And, you know, getting a chance to go gives me a chance to continue to, have opportunities to do different types of work with people um, and and meet new people where opportunities to do projects are are possible that can bring enjoyment and um, from our readers, you know, yeah. more than anything. What about you? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things on that. I, I think the way to sort of differentiate beat reporter versus analyst, you know, you see some of it at the Senior Bowl, you see a lot more of it at the Combine. One will ask the question, have you met with Team X yet? And that is their question at every podium because that's what their readers want to hear. Like, has so-and-so met with the New England Patriots? Whereas another analyst might ask, a throw you made against Hawaii at the end of that game where it looked like you were reading a post route to a dig route and then you threw the dig route late, but it was completed. What were you doing there? That's more analyst side. Now, there are some, Teron Davenport, for example, for ESPN, for the Titans. He's tremendous. He's tremendous because he will ask you, have you met with the Titans? And let them turn around and say, against Michigan, you lined up in a three technique that entire game when you were in a five technique the rest of the year. Was that a game time decision? What went into that? And Toronto's great work. So, you know, he's fantastic. But that's kind of the difference. Um, and you get information from both. You just have to know kind of what you're dealing with. I, th I think for the senior bowl itself, you know, like you said, watching the practices like last year when they were able, we were able to sort of get the game film and watch it like that was great because then you the practice film excuse me because then you could sort of really see things like you know where i stand at the senior bowl i am in one end zone high up that's my quarterback view like that's what i do and so the stuff that happens at the other end of the field i'm not gonna see it so you you need that you're not gonna see everything if you if you this is your first senior bowl if this is your first trip down there now, I know they're going to be a different stadium. It's going to be a little bit different than Lad Peebles, but you're not going to see everything. So that's one thing you should know going in. You should also know, and you know, Emery 
has said this for years and he's right. It's a business trip. It's a business trip. Like if you were going down there to cover this for an outlet, for a website, whatever, it, it, it is a business trip. And we all joke about Veets and what happens at Veets or what happens at Saucy Q stays there. And that's true. But remember, in this industry, you are your brand. You are your own personal ambassador. And, you know, obviously I have a bit more of an old school mentality to this, um, given my legal background where, you know, your reputation is everything. Um, but you have to sort of take it seriously. You know, you have to sort of, you know, say the right things, do the right things, look the part, be the part, um, you know, take the work seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. We started the show with me making fun of myself, which is something I do on a daily basis and, and that's okay, but take the work seriously, you know, and also remember this and I cannot stress this enough and I'm living proof of it. Those that you come across, treat them well, treat them like your mom or your dad or somebody you care about is in the room because things have a way of coming around. And yes, I'm here because reaching out to Matt and building a relationship with Matt over the years, you know, I'm living proof of that. Like people that you are, you take care of, will find a way to take care of you down the road some way. And it might be in ways you might never imagine. It might open up doors you might never imagine. So then when you're down there at the senior bowl, like do the right things, say the right things, you know, put your best foot forward because it can open doors for you in an industry, which is sometimes tough to find those open doors. I love that advice. And I'll add one more thing onto it. I'll add, I love that old school approach and I'll make it even more older school. Keep your eyes open and your mouth shut when you're new starting off. There's a time to talk and there's a time not to talk. If you're at practice, it's, there's nothing wrong with introducing yourself and coming up to someone and saying hello. But don't try, even if you like the person's work and admire what they do, trying to impress them with what you know about a player while they're trying to watch practice is not the time to do that. You're also, you got to think about those other persons and what their business might be. If you're coming up to someone who was a former NFL scout and has worked in the league, they might be there to meet with other NFL people. And there are NFL people around in the stands, people you might not recognize. You might recognize their name, but you might not recognize their face and they might be a decision maker. So you coming up talking about what a clown a certain player is or how bad he is or making fun of something and saying it loud because you know, you're being loud in an outdoor environment that other people can hear. You're not only making yourself look bad, you're making the people, the person you're talking to look bad. And maybe they're trying to angle for an opportunity somewhere. And if, so if they look at you with a stink face, like, please leave now, it's probably because you tried a little too hard. And, and so my biggest recommendation is like, yeah, if you want to go and have those conversations, the parking lot's a good idea. You know, the restaurants and bars are good ideas doing that. But when you're in the, when you're in the stands, I mean, there are times that people do that. But I find that, you know, you don't have to try so hard. Sometimes the nicest thing to do is just kind of sit there and say, hey, you know, after practice, can I ask you a couple of questions? Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll, I remember you know. my first senior bowl year was the Carson Wentz year. And that Thursday was my first full day. And we were in the end zone. You were there and Sigmund Bloom. And I swear the only thing I said 
for pretty much that entire practice was there was a high snap to Carson Wentz and he jumped up and got it. And I said, look, that's the reason he's QB1 right there. That's size. You can't teach that. That was like literally the only thing I said because I was like, look, I am not going to stick my foot in my mouth in this moment. Um, but you're right. Assume that whatever you say is going to be heard by somebody that knows and loves the person you're about to talk about. Yeah. Because odds are it will be true. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've made those mistakes before. I mean, like yeah, and most of them have come – most of them have, you know, most of the time I try I, early on, I tried very hard to try and prove myself wanting to have conversations with people. And I learned pretty quickly just one is I had Cecil with me. So I knew Cecil kind of gave me the ropes. So I kind of would initiate conversations when we were out to eat. That was where I mostly did. But I did find that people would say something funny and then I'd add something funny. And the next thing I know, a Saints scout is looking at me like, shut the hell up, you know? Right. Like kind of looking at me, giving me the side eye or something like that. And I thought, yeah, you know, I never know who these people are. And you don't know what opportunities are going to come. Because, and when I say that specifically, one of the best things that I got to do that came from the Senior Bowl is I got to do a RSP film with, with Jamal Williams. And... I have no idea who recommended me to Jamal Williams, but his um, his uncle, who was a, is a trainer, like a, a fairly well-known trainer from college and pro athletes who trained Jamal, was looking for me in the stands and mm -hmm. found me. And he told me, he was like, he was like, he said, you're, he said, I've been looking for you. And he said, I, you know, I know that because he saw that I had done a video on, on Jamal earlier in the year. And so we started talking about him and that gave me the opportunity to be able to say, um, and he liked the nuance of what I did with Jamal because he had gotten in trouble at BYU. Um, and it was like a drunk driving type thing or DUI possession of alcohol type of yeah. thing. Um, and he, he wasn't drunk driving, but you know, he ended up having issues there and because it's a dry school and all of that, but he redeemed himself. And I, I talked about him with nuance, not just outlawing him in the way so many people do with young players, just talking about, you know, it was young, immature. It was a decision he made, not the end of the world. The team brought him back. That tells you something too. Um, but they appreciated that. And as a result, I was able to say, I was able to get him on a show and be able to spend an hour with him and looking at the games that I wanted to look at, not the ones that he wanted to look right. at, yeah. you know? And, and so it was like those types of things, people do seek you out and you don't, you know, it's weird because they, they, you don't know when that's going to happen. Um, and you can parlay it in a good opportunity. But if you're like, if you're acting like you do on Twitter as a personality, um, that can be that can work against you depending on yeah. what you're trying to achieve. So that's that's kind of how I would would end that. Yeah. No, I mean I think this is all good advice for people that are going to be heading down there. But I I do think the the biggest advice is just stay safe. I yeah. mean if you're willing to go, great, fantastic. I wish you all the best. But just stay safe. You yeah. Know? Because if not for you, for those you love. Yeah. I'd say you're gonna have better work in networking opportunities in 2022. Yeah. Um, maybe, you know, and if we have to wait till 2023, fine, 
but that would be that would be my thing but listen you know this is another great hour and change with mark schofield and you know we love you know i love having him work in and do writing for me at the rsp and getting to do this show every other week um you know we obviously have a good time and if you had a good time listening to this please rate review this podcast you can find it at matt waldman's rsp film room um you know and you can send email feedback to mark or myself or hit us up on twitter let us know at mark schofield at matt waldman um and uh you guys have yourselves a really nice week <laughs>